Welcome everyone, Yasin here, and this is the third episode of this uh, podcast series, and today we're going to be talking about the gap between learning code and producing usable software. And before starting out, let's do consider subscribing to the podcast and the newsletter. They are on uh, yasin.substack.com or on my official website, yasinorzala.com. Without further ado, let's dive right into the topic. Now, one of the unspoken areas about software development is building usable software and learning how to code, coding something and having it used by thousands is not an easy task. In this podcast, I will be discussing the most important pillars that you need to address before launching your product. A little um, story, my first app ever was a social media and if you would exceed 100 comments per post, the app becomes crazy slow. The database overfetches, authentication was broken and the whole world was just burning down. Not a great spot to be in. But this goes without saying that paying close attention to some little details will save you months of technical debt and headache. A little note each point can be open for debate. Take this with a grain of salt, and uh, this is what you will get you started, basically. So the more you learn, the more reliable your app becomes. And think of these steps as um, a checklist for your next product. Now, the first thing that we're going to be talking about is the code safety. While coding, or even when you finish the app, you want to make sure that the environment is safe. No user data is leaking and the app is reliable and ready to scale for any spikes of usage. Avoid unwrapping values the unsafe way. In other words, just check if the value is nil, not as hard. Then execute your logic. Surprisingly, this is not talked about that much and as a fresh software developer, you never know what will crash your app. You should never be 100% sure that a value won't be nil. Weird stuff happens. Trust me. Avoid retain cycles. While these are caused unintentionally and not easy to detect, you will need to run a check for your app to detect if memory is retained for some unused objects. Each IDE has tools to help you check for retain cycles and you need to make use of them. Xcode, for example, and as an iOS developer, has a tab where you can detect memory spikes, the allocations, and CPU usage. There are many ways to detect if something is wrong with your app. Hardware-wise, make sure to search on the net depending on your platform. Also, you need to protect your keys. More often than not, you will be finding yourself using third-party services, and these services provide a secret and test key to get you access to their API, which is totally fine. These are, in fact, really great, and nowadays, I encourage you to use third-party reliable services. In production, you use the secret key, and it's secret for a reason. If leaked, another person will use it, and you will be paying the bill. <laughs> Not so fun. Even worse, this might leak your users' data or, or even shut down the servers. That's why it, it's important to make use of environment variables. As the name applies, these are variables that live in the local machine. Say, when a script wants to have access to that secret key, it can get it from the local machine. This way, you're not hard-coding anything into that specific script and at the same time, keeping your code clean and secure. Also, regarding your passwords. Now, this is an underrated problem that is not talked about that much. And honestly, if you would just search the internet, you might find some really shallow topics on it. 
or some really deep topics on it, which in both cases is not that optimized given your uh, time value trade-off. Now, when you aren't using reliable third-party services for authentication such as AWS or Firebase, or even in some cases when, even when you are using them, you want to include or rewrite a part of the authentication system, you need to be hashing the passwords yourself, basically just representing the passwords in different characters. Personally, I keep the hashing function as part of the API in a separate file in the cloud. I include a random environment variable that I can keep track of, which dictates how the password will be generated for a specific user depending on the information provided, say a combination of the username, the email, the date when they uh, subscribed or uh, registered in the app and all that. And we're set. I don't need to know my user's password. I trigger the sign-in by triggering the same hashing function using the environment variable I stored before, and everything is secure. Another important point to mention is the logs. Don't skip logs, which is or which are just similar to printing statements. When building for production, this can be a great way to shoot yourself in the leg, literally. Keeping logging functions extends to the build, and if you are logging sensitive information, you'll get in trouble. Just stick with the classic print statements. These are safe for usage in production and aren't logged. From iOS point of view, at least, you might want to double check with your own platform. The second major point is help your project help you. And this is more visual or on the design side of things. After building a couple of apps in different areas with moderate difficulty, you'll wish you've done many things a different way. Note these down and use them in your next project. My projects went from utter spaghetti mess to a clean hierarchy. So for example, in my case, I found it hard to keep track of the placement of my files in Xcode. So for each screen, I had a folder. The folder contains front-end logic and back-end logic and some unique utilities depending on that specific screen. As for general utilities, I would keep them in a global folder to refer to them from every other file. Also, think of factorizing the most. When coding, you want to have a file work as a global factor to other scripts that use the same functionality. And also, at some point, you'll realize you are dealing with many folders and your project is huge and this is a thousand times better than just having everything cramped into one folder and you waste 30 minutes, uh, 30 seconds to one minute to find um, a file. You don't need to follow my pattern obviously, but uh, you, you can always uh, like experiment for yourself. The third most important point here is the servers. So your servers will make you pay for what you don't know, literally. Sometimes it's tempting to use third-party services since they can make life easier. I'm all down for using these, and in fact, I use them a lot. However, you need to know the inside out of their billing policies and know what you're built for. Rule of thumb, add a service only when it can save you costs and or even enhance your UX. Yes, I just said you need to add a service that will save you money. For example, AWS has a free tier usage per service. So instead of pu putting the pressure on just one service, you can make use of multiple. You take the roundabout but you end up just saving the cost early on. And even in some cases, 
you end up saving the costs early on and even at a later stage when you scale. Now, algorithmically speaking, you can save database costs on your client side. The intuitive way is by making fewer calls, caching user information, and preloading data for future usage. This obviously adds more work client side, but it's getting easier to integrate offline capabilities than ever. A little note though, by experience, I noticed the more you save money client side, the better your UX gets and the higher the performance gets as well. I'm aware this is a bold point to make, so I'll leave diving into it for another episode. Scalability wise, make sure to keep your code usable for traffic, uh, for huge traffic spikes. These are basic algorithm analysis techniques and they are often shorter to code. For example, use built-in sort functions, don't iterate every time on a list of 100 items and above, cache your results, make use of dynamic programming. By the way, a link um, to dynamic programming and the definition of that is in the article. And yeah, just keep on using the built-in functions and the natively developed uh, functions with the IDE to get your life uh, easier. Moving on to the fourth most important point here is the layout issues. Now, just when you think you're done, obviously you have some layout issues. Um, by now, you might think you're done, obviously, and there is a bit more to the story. You are very close though, so cheer up. Often when building your project, check-in tutorials, stack overflow, etc., you find hard-coded pixel values. Typically, you find a layout or a view with set to 100 pixels and the height the same or similar. So these hard-coded values are made for simplicity's sake. Now your app won't scale because each device has different number of pixels, etc. And I still don't know why people still are making these um, arguments. But here's what you are supposed to be doing. When coding, avoid using hard-coded values and make use of a percentage. You can have two static variables in a separate class from which you can get the height and width of the current screen. This way, while coding my layout, I have fast access and scalable way of presenting my layout. Typically, you'll be calling the class as some, some random class dot screen width times 0.5, which mainly means make my button's width half of the super view's width. And the same applies for the height. Also, you need to test on different physical devices. Simulators aren't that bad, but sometimes screw up layout-wise. They also have more performance since they are run on your computer. And sometimes when a layout or animation looks smooth on your computer, you might want to test it on a physical device and double check for yourself. Don't stress over the layout too much though. Have a fair looking one and then make use of third-party packages plugins, libraries for animation. There are many free services that help you make your app look neat for the least effort possible. Remember, we are all about doing 20% of the investment for 80% return in this newsletter. Now, client error handling is the fifth most important point and you can get away with this, but also don't overlook it. Now, error handling is fun, right? Or you might think you don't need it, so you just use a standard pop-up to show any error, try again later kind of message. Don't. This is just bad, bad, bad coding. 
Every app will crash and fail at, this, at some point, and you want to provide a targeted message to what happened. While you can't know every single reason for a potential failure, you know the error code. Now, to get my projects up and running, I embed the error code with a standard failure pop-up. This way, when a user reports the problem during a beta or production, um, I check the logs for the code, which makes it fast and easy regarding debugging. At a later stage, you want to remove the codes and move to a natural language explanation. But you'll start working on this when the time comes for enhancing your UX further. The sixth most important point here is cross-services error handling. Now, this is the same as the previous case, but one important matter is to take into consideration is if you are dealing with a financial backend such as Stripe, you want to have your webhooks, which are basically just uh, an API that receives transaction calls from Stripe or PayPal, etc. And here you update your database. So say, for example, there is a transaction and uh, um, you have a monthly recurring subscription and then Stripe sends um, a success handler to your webhook which is just an API that waits for a successful transaction and then updates your database. So, so error handling in this case is very critical because you don't want to flag a user as non-paying because they had their payments attempt succeed, but you just failed to call the database and make the necessary updates. So be careful. Also, the seventh most important point here is the test cases. And this one is underrated. So you can't get away with this too early on, and uh, writing test cases is indis indispensable for reliable software. Especially when calling and adding more features as a team, you never know who coded what and how that reacted with a piece of code you've written yourself. So if you are a solo developer and about to ship a basic product, you might get away with skipping this step, but you need to keep in mind you'll have to write the test cases to avoid basic bugs in the future. All right, so this was definitely a lengthy one. I hope you found this article helpful. Sorry I had to make it this long, but the process had to be detailed and practical. Consider sharing with your friends and anyone who might find this podcast helpful. And if you're not subscribed yet, consider doing so. Until the next time, take care. Bye.